You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 13th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. Should Israel allow foreign reporters into Gaza? And should foreign reporters go if Israel does? Are British and other voters just impossible to please? And Taste Atlas reveals which country's national cuisine is best, which seems unlikely to occasion any controversy whatsoever. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Lizette Raymer and Ivor Gaber will discuss the day's big stories and we'll hear the story of a Chinese restaurant near Boston which became a famed jazz and blues dining club in the 1980s. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Ivor Gaber, Professor of Political Journalism at the University of Sussex and by Lizette Raymer, Europe correspondent at News Hub. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi. Uh, Lizette, this is the time of year at which uh, we peoples of the Antipodean persuasion often wearily, lamentingly compare with each other the absurd schleps we are about to undertake to travel home <laughs> to see our frankly rarely grateful families for Christmas. But You cannot participate in this discourse. You sensibly, as I understand it, are going somewhere closer. Yes, as tempting as the 30-hour flight was (laughs) for the second time this year, I've opted to just go north to Norway instead and do something completely different to what you get in New Zealand. No sunshine, no beaches, just a lot of darkness, a lot of ice, and hopefully the northern lights. See, see, it is... Is it the Northern Lights that are tipping the balance here? Because it does seem, at least to me, and I think it would seem to most other people from the Antipodes, a perverse choice at this time of year to go somewhere even colder, damper and darker than London. It is the Northern Lights. It is the Northern Lights and the reindeer. Okay. You know, we had reindeer right here at Midori House this weekend. Oh, where was my invite? At our Christmas market. You could you could have come and seen reindeer without going all the way to Norway. Northern Lights, we couldn't do. I have seen the Northern Lights. One time it was actually really spectacular. It was exactly the full-blown thing right. you're waiting for. That was in Iceland. Uh, the second time in Finland, it was just sort of a green smudge. Let's go for option A. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I wish you luck with that. Ivor, yeah. do you have exciting Christmas plans? Well, I have nice Christmas plans. My, uh, I was telling Lisa that uh, my daughter, who has chosen as her partner a a man, I'm say a young man, not so, who loves cooking. So wise, they, very, they very are wise. doing. They've taken up. They're doing the Christmas meal for fourteen people. And we're just turning up, as we are turning up at other people's places who've invited us. So um, nothing exciting, but um, not... Actually, I'm very envious. I'd love to see the Northern Lights, I think. And I think real cold, which hopefully you'll get in Norway, is better than the dank, miserable wet cold we have here so i think you're a little bit cynical there andrew i, mean, I, I, this I, is I don't a good know choice. on that particular trip in finland most days the average temperature was about minus 35 which oh. is is bracing oh uh, yeah that's that's taking it to extremes <laughs> but uh, i live on the philosophy that anything after negative 10 is just the same yeah, and any chance, <laughs> any chance of catching Father Christmas and the elves up there? Have I got he, the wrong? He was country? here. At, he was here at the weekend as well. Oh gosh, you had it all. We wow. did. We, it was literal Father Christmas. Who? I'm not kidding. We do fly in from Finland. The reindeer are from Essex. 
but we do fly Father Christmas in from Rovaniemi. Why? Really? Yeah. From, no, from where? Rovaniemi in Finland. We Could you not do. find a local Santa? <laughs> well, no, because the local Santas are not Santa. This yeah. is actual, oh, don't t- don't, you, actual Santa. Gosh, this is extraordinary. What, what happens when my niece and nephew listen? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Well, there's there's always next year, Lizette. Um, we will, with an absolutely inaudible grinding of gears, uh, start properly by looking at Gaza, at least to the extent that that is possible. Local journalists within Gaza have been able to communicate an idea of the reality on the ground, if at dreadful risk and shocking cost. At least 63 of them have been killed since the war between Israel and Hamas began. However, foreign journalists covering the conflict have had to do so from outside Gaza, give or take a few escorted tours by the Israel Defence Forces. Erez, the major crossing from Israel, is closed to reporters, as is the Rafah crossing between Gaza and Egypt. The Foreign Press Association is now mounting a legal procedure to secure access. Um, either, first of all, Obviously, the circumstances are that it is up to Israel to decide whether or not foreign reporters should be allowed into Gaza. Should Israel be allowing people in if they are willing to go? I'm not dodging the question, but I'm sure Hamas has a say in it as well. well I'm not indeed. sure they would welcome. Should Israel? Of course they should. I th- you know, this is a, a terrible breach of, of international media freedom. These are momentous, tragic events, and we're getting the story as told by the Israeli Defence Force. We clearly were getting some very courageous freelancers from Gaza Mm -hmm. getting stuff out. But, I mean, I think the chances of the Foreign Press Association, which is actually a very robust and lively organisation, is winning its court case at just about zero um, because, you know, national security will be invoked, end of conversation. But uh, there was a very heartfelt, heartfelt maybe the wrong word very strong piece from jeremy bowen a broadcaster on another station who was we're allowed to say bbc BBC. it's fine he is their foreign editor and was rightfully this morning complaining about how difficult it was to do that job reporting on what's happening there when they are completely restrained so i think israel is doing itself obviously it wants to dominate the narrative but i think Mm -hmm. it's doing itself no favors by restricting the foreign press in this way the question is probably hypothetical, Lizette, for all the reasons that Iva has just laid out there. But even if Israel did decide it would allow journalists in or and or if the Foreign Press Association's legal action, action succeeded, it would then present quite the conundrum to news organisations such as the one you work for, which has sent you to Ukraine and did have you in Israel quite recently, which is that should you send your employees into those conditions. Indeed, can you responsibly do it even if they are willing to go? And I'm not at all comparing my own experience of Gaza to what it is like now. I've been once and that was in 2005, which it was it was alarming and probably more dangerous than I'd wanted to let myself believe before I went. Um, but it does not bear any comparison, obviously, to the circumstances now should people be going and reporting from that, dangerous as it obviously is? Yeah, I don't think it would be a flood of journalists. I don't think as many as we've seen in Israel, for example, would make the journey into Gaza by any stretch of the imagination. But I definitely think news organisations would have a very serious conversation about who they possibly could send and how it was possible. All of the work journalists do in these environments come with risk. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea is to try and mitigate the risk as much as possible. Gaza, because of the size of it, 
we know that the Gazans themselves are getting pushed into such a small area that's considered safe, but everybody, I mean, the tagline at the moment is there's no safe place in Mm -hmm. Gaza. The blanket bombing makes it so incredibly difficult for anyone to keep safe in there at the moment. So it would be incredibly challenging, I think, for a news organisation to put together a mitigation plan that they were so comfortable with that they could really, really endorse journalists going in there. But there would absolutely be journalists who were putting their hand up to be in that position because at the moment trying to tell the story from in Israel when so much of it is in Gaza mm. the people you want to talk to the stories that you need to be telling it in Gaza almost feels insulting to the story it's part of the reason why we haven't been back because it's so hard to justify what you get extra from being in Tel Aviv than you do in London for example because the story is so centered in Gaza at the moment and you want to do it justice and you want to be able to tell the right story and I think so many journos will be desperate to get in there and do the story justice and also to take some of the pressure and the responsibility off those Palestinian journalists who Mm -hmm. have been doing such a courageous job but who do not have necessarily the skills, the training to cope in those environments as a working member of the press. Um, Ivor, the other difficulty that might well arise is that for all the reasons Lizette uh, adumbrates, the bigger news agencies might be extremely reluctant to come up with a plan which allowed them in all good conscience and with all acknowledgement of their legal responsibilities to send their own staff in. So you then get, and this happens a lot in war zones, as you know, you get the freelancers who take a chance. You get the young ones, the inexperienced ones, the people without insurance, without training, who think here is a chance to make a name for myself. And massive respect, obviously, to their courage, but they are running an absolutely shocking risk. And how should news agencies deal with their copy? Should they be encouraging people to do this? Well, you raise a very good point. Um, I'm involved with UNESCO, which monitors an Mm -hmm. official report. And um, I was going to say the majority, I'm not sure, but a significant number of the journalists killed in action are freelancers, as Lisette said, untrained, they haven't got the body armour, etc, etc. So you raise a very good point. Um, I would make two points in response. One is how should um, news agencies or whoever deal with their copy? I think if they've got good stories, if it's credible, if they know them to be reliable, I think they should use it uh, in terms of news values. However, there's a third, there's a a midpoint, isn't there? We haven't even seen many journalists being embedded with the IDF. There's been a a few small And under very heavy restrictions. But even that is better than at current, because I can't remember seeing an, an embedded report for a number of weeks. I mean, I think journalists from organisations that are well organised could relatively safely, very easy for me to see, say, speaking from a London studio, relatively safely could go in as embeds, Mm -hmm. which is better than nothing. Um, But the point you make about freelancers is very good. However, I have to say, at the end of the day, if the BBC says to its journalists in Israel or any organisations, are you, you know, is anybody prepared... to go. I mean, Jeremy Bowen said, I would, but with great trepidation. Mm. I think they should be allowed to go. But as I say, easy for me to say. I also think a lot of people at home probably don't realise just how much support is in place for journalists, foreign correspondents who do go into these environments. You're talking about 
24-7 people monitoring you with tracking devices, uh, with a huge exit strategy for if anything were to go with equipment this, this, like... This is if you're, if you're on the if, staff if, with a big if news organisation. If you're on staff with a big network, if you're not a freelancer, you have all of that... Um, uh, PPE that is supposed to bodyguards. You're accompanied frequently. by bodyguards. You have drivers. You have certain vehicles you have to have. You have um, you have all sort of technology on your phone that is providing GPS um, sending back to base. You have satellite phones so that you can contact people if the power is out. You have so much support around you that you have this this huge sense of uh, yeah just support and safety going into a place that is so obviously dangerous and you often in those environments I, it happened a lot in Ukraine you'd come a lot, come across freelance journalists who had nothing mm. nothing and you my like blood would run cold thinking about their circumstances but they are doing it because often they're running into places that even with all the support the big networks will give you they still won't allow you to go to those places I mean, is there an argument either that for some militaries and I'm it's probably arguable that this has at least occurred to the Israelis. It's certainly, I think, part of the way that Russia has made war, not just in Ukraine, but also in Chechnya and in Syria. The understanding that if you make a place too dangerous, um, nobody's going to report on what you're doing there because nobody's going to much fancy going. But then that does allow you to completely control the narrative, Indeed. doesn't it? In Ukraine... Um, and I, I've been there only in peacetime, but it's the, the only footage we get of the fighting comes from very little from, quote, official Ukrainian sources, mostly Russians showing us them advancing. So I do think that from that perspective, um, they're, they're, to be able to control the narrative like that is probably a great advantage. And that's clearly the model that Israel is adopting, but it ain't working. I mean, you just look at the UN vote yesterday. The idea that somehow or other <coughs> they will be able to portray the, the bombardment of s- civilians in Gaza with a horrendous death toll in some sort of positive way because they're controlling the narrative is fallacious. I think specifically when it comes to war reporting, Eyewitness journalism is so powerful and so critical. It just allows a completely impartial person who doesn't have family or, you know, what Mm. we're seeing in Gaza are people reporting on their families. That's such an impossible situation. For journalists to be able to go into those environments and report exactly what they're seeing with their own eyes, with their own conversations, that is so critical to being able to get impartial and and such valuable journalism out. Well, of course, the Israelis have allowed... the journalists to do it in southern Israel, some very heart-rendering stories of the massacres, the Mm -hmm. atrocities, the the families of the hostages, that's been very much to their advantage and they've allowed... It's not free, quite quite free reign. I was talking to somebody who's operated down there. They are escorted, but they're not embedded. They get down to the kibbutz that have been, and they're allowed to do what they like, but they don't have free access. But nonetheless, that has been that bit has been to Israel's advantage, but nothing in Gaza has been to their advantage. And still, very highly orchestrated. Those those tours were. Um, just finally on this, uh, Lizette, Ivor mentioned the vote at the UN General Assembly. This did include a shift by Australia from um, abstaining last time to voting with the resolution calling for a ceasefire this time. We also saw a joint statement from the Prime Ministers of Australia, Canada and New Zealand. Three people not necessarily massively politically aligned, at least one out of the three isn't. But is is that significant, do you think? 
I mean, it's another three countries who are saying that there should be a ceasefire. I think a lot of New Zealanders personally have been growing increasingly frustrated with the fact that our Prime Minister hasn't drawn a line in the sand and actually said that, that that is what New Zealand wants. So I think for people who are protesting in the street every weekend in these countries, that's at least that their government is listening to them. Whether or not it will make any difference in the grand scheme of things, I don't necessarily think so. Well, let's move along and look at the UK. And earlier today, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak faced the final Prime Minister's questions of the year. And though probably not the final PMQs of his career, his Conservative Party are in one of their moods, as are the British public. And as I say that out loud, I realise that it would have been an accurate observation for most of the last decade at least. Latest polling by YouGov suggests that Sunak is now as popular as Boris Johnson was when he was tipped out of office. In 2022, Sunak is more popular than Liz Truss when she went, but she was less popular than Spiders. Um, Ivor, Rishi Sunak is polling unfavourables at 70%. Is that entirely fair on him or are the British public just frankly impossible? Fair. <laughs> Why should, strange word to use. No, I mean, I, I think what what we're seeing is by the public is a total shrug of the shoulders and trying to be impartial. Just go. You know, this group have been in office for 13 years. They're falling apart. They're, t- they're obsessed. It's, 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 it's a visceral thing, yeah, isn't it, that happens yeah, when yeah. one party's yeah. been in charge a long saying, time. People just, just get sick of them. And they're not enthusiastic. They're, you know, they're, they're reasonably solidly committed to returning a Labour government, but they're not that wild about their leader. That's a di- so, But they're just saying, for good, goodness sake, go. And I think that's reflected on Sunak, who has shown a certain amount of political naivety. We forget that he only came into the Commons, he only became an MP in 2015, mm-hmm. and then suddenly finds himself, or finds himself, he fought very hard to be leader. Um, leading the Tory party, particularly when they are rats in a sack, and they are in terminal decline. I was giving a talk uh, this last weekend looking back the year in politics, and I went back to the polls in December 2022, and compared them those recent and the, what was extraordinary was they are exactly the same they haven't moved now that is in terms of polling history very unusual you know labor is 20 points ahead clearly i'm not saying they'll get be 20 points ahead come polling day but the british people have made up their mind they want to change a government and they're just sort of drumming their fingers wondering when is it going to happen and that's reflecting in in Sunak's polling ratings, which I don't think are going to move much no matter what happens. Because, Lizette, we did want to broaden this out a bit to talk about that thought that the citizens of prosperous, secure, relatively orderly and functional Western democracies have just become irretrievably grumpy uh, and impossible to please. Um, As Ivor was pointing out, uh, though Sakir Starmer, the leader of the opposition here, is more popular than Rishi Sunak, uh, he's not actually all that popular. He has 32% of people with a positive view of him versus 54% with a negative view of him. He hasn't really done anything yet. Yeah, I think when I was looking at this, and I think you're exactly right, I think I feel like those polls are a reflection of the feeling towards the party and politics in general, not necessarily saying that the public would rather have Boris Johnson in than Rishi Sunak, given he was higher at his very end than Rishi is now. I don't think that is the message here. I think a lot of countries around the world are dealing with a situation where they can't 
please the public because the situation is tough at the moment. There's cost of living crisis. There are wars that are dominating conversation and pulling attention away from domestic issues. There the, the rise, rise of, of the right wing. I was going to say the rise of populism has been is... huge and and divisive. I feel like there is so much division in the country in New Zealand, but all around the world since COVID and what that brought out in people, dividing people and pushing people to the extremes. And as a result, I think people are losing faith in politics and in politicians even more than usual. And I think those leaders, those politicians that are truly inspiring and compelling and People like Jacinda Ardern, who, in her, when she burst onto the scene, just captivated the mm. affection of the entire country. I think those politicians and those leaders are very hard to come by. And I don't think Rishi is one, and I don't think Keir Starmer is one. And that's why you've got the public being like, oh. But, but Ivory, is, is that lapse towards populism not a symptom rather than the cause? Because populists prosper by... Well, they, they tell their audience two things, and these are two things which people always want to hear, which is that none of your difficulties are your fault uh, and that the solutions to your problems are extremely simple. That is a very attractive manifesto to put mm. before people. Um, the world is, 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 is simply divided into um, the manipulative few who are making lots of money mm -hmm. and doing it at your expense and the rest of us. And it's that ability for the populist leader, who's usually very rich, him or herself, usually himself, to identify with the masses. Um, and actually, that's what Boris Johnson was able to do to make people think, you know, when people said, why were they voting for him? And I'm, he's not quite a populist leader, but he's edging that way. People say, oh, well, he's a good bloke. He understands us. Um, but populist leaders... He isn't and he doesn't, just to be clear. <laughs> Heckle. <laughs> Um, I, but populist leaders, and there's been, a, I've done a little bit of work on it, have got ability to make themselves seem like the common man, particularly the man. I mean, that was Hitler's great uh, ability. And I'm worried that they seem to be on the rise, whether we look in Europe, into Latin America. I wouldn't call the Antipodean, well, certainly not in the, Aust the Australian, but it's particularly in... Africa, we're seeing the, there are now fewer democracies in Africa than there mm -hmm. were 10 years ago. Democracy is in retreat, and I think that's very worrying. But, Lizette, it's still a choice that a plurality of voters make to believe uh, in the fairy tales of populists, and it's still a choice that voters make to blame everything on politicians rather than think about actually, well, really anything or engage with anything constructively. Um, my own pet wish would be that more politicians would acquire the confidence to take a more robust line with the voters. It's it's an extreme illustration, and it is a is the idea of a friend of mine whose pitch for a political discussion program would be to take the template of question time, but reverse it. He said, what I would like to see is every week a panel of politicians screaming at a bunch of voters that they've got absolutely no idea what they're talking about, no clue how anything actually works. I think I'd watch it. I Honestly, I think I, I would listen. I think I, I would watch it. <laughs> I would watch the absolute hell out of that. But there, but there is there is a point there that that politicians feel inhibited from actually saying to voters ever, I do actually know more about this than you do. And sometimes I feel like, even as a journalist, when you're talking to some of the voters, yelling that at them, not that I know more <laughs> than about politics, but that politicians actually do, do know, some of them, what they're talking about and have a plan. I think a lot of... 
voters would prefer, especially the Brits, who I think err on the complainy side of life. I think that's a... F- it, it's not an assessment an Australian is going to disagree with. Great. Heckle, no. heckle. Heckle, yeah. heckle. It will what, continue. Whatever else our peoples may disagree about across the Tasman, the whinging pom stereotype, we can both We can get agree behind. on. I think sometimes... I'm leaving. You know, <laughs> I do just wish sometimes people would present a solution or actually be able to talk about what they want to see in a practical path to get there. I attend, well, I, on, on, there's an online weekly um, discussion programme, well, it's a webinar put on by a political group and it's and it's called It's All Bloody Complicated. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, that is the point that we as voters, let's say, think it's very simple. Why don't you just get on and do it? Politicians are all the same. They break their promises. It is complicated. And here's something controversial. In my experience of working at Westminster, where I was for 10, 12 years, um, there are egregious politicians, but actually most of them are actually trying to do a good job for the country as they see it. Now, I might disagree with how they see it, but I think few politicians are corrupt, egregious and so on. And of course, they're the ones that capture the headlines. Well, I was just going to say exactly that. The the diligent, decent and hardworking ones, probably most voters have never heard of. Um, but we will move along to something else about which nobody agrees, i.e. food. The annual deliberations of Taste Atlas are in, ranking the top 100 national cuisines of the world and the top 100 dishes. It is predictably and deservedly good news for Italy, Japan and Greece, although two of them will doubtless quibble vehemently with the order, framing it in terms of the people at this table. England is at England is at 39th, an inexplicable and outrageous Outrageous. 11 places ahead of Australia. While New Zealand languages in 94th. Don't even say it. The judges clearly unimpressed by marmite and chip sandwiches. Um, (laughs) A delicacy, I tell you, a delicacy. Uh, Lizette, first of all, it, it does seem reasonable to give you a right of reply. Would you like to? speak up in favour of New Zealandish food? I'm not sure I'll speak in favour of New Zealand food, but I will speak against Australian food oh, and how, British food. How, how very, very typical. I'm not even mad at us being 94th <laughs> in particular. It's just that England and Australia are so far above us when they offer nothing more. Well, that's not entirely... What does Australia have that New Zealand doesn't that has put you 30-odd places ahead of us? Kangaroo and emu steak. No one's eating that. Fish and chips. (laughs) Sorry, that's my heckle, fish and chips. We have fish and chips. Yeah, but... I I mean, I just tried to tell my British flatmate, actually, that we invented fish and chips, (laughs) and he was not impressed. Lizette, are you really passing up this opportunity to reignite the Pavlova Wars? Because... because I didn't even want to go there, honestly. Because that's right there. Um, I did want to ask you, uh, obviously... I'll ask you first, Ivor, and obviously we're ruling out New Zealand because we've already given it a well, bit of a kicking. Sorry for them. We, we, we do. Uh, more to be pitied than blamed, really. Um, what is the worst national cuisine you've ever encountered? Oh, apart from New Zealand. Apart that, from New we, Zealand. We take that for granted. Well, I have to say British food is pretty close <laughs> to the right answer. I mean, truly. But, truly it um, is. <laughs> I did for a long time fall out of love with Chinese food. That was because... Chinese take it was full of monosodium mm. glutamate, which was, gave you this terrible buzzy headache. Um, but they seem to have phased it out, so I now like it. I've got to say, had you asked me what's my favourite mm-hmm. food, I would have supported Italy. I, I, I love Italian food, although my tastes are very simplice, very simple. I don't particularly like pizza. And actually, I lived in Italy for a couple of years, and pizza isn't that big. 
pizza mm. isn't that big there. It's New York which made the name of pizza. But sadly, just to finish this Italian tribute, um, I came I came back from Italy with a great love for the food, but an old spag bol, <laughs> which is not even an Italian dish um, in one sense because the traditional um, bolognese sauce was just tomato. Um, during popular demand, they had to add meat, but I love spag bol. But I also growing taste for Japanese food. Um, but you didn't, you asked me by the, yeah, my, my, I've forgotten the question. Chinese oh, the worst. The, the, the worst. But only take away Chinese with too much monosodium okay. glutamate. I, I'm basically, I'm just trying to goad you both into upsetting somebody and filling your inbox with outraged emails. I, I will go and say that it, go ahead and say it was my only ever visit to Venezuela. It may not be reflective of the cuisine in general. I was in Caracas for a week. Everything I was served was just absolute nonsense. Yeah. Um, Lizette? I would say, and this is maybe a bit controversial, but I am done with kebabs after Turkey. Mm-hmm. I've just had one too many of those. <laughs> you know, it's very, it's very heavy mutton on that kebab. Be- because, I, funnily enough, I was going to ask you both if there is an underrated national cuisine you wanted to advance, and I was going to advance something kebab adjacent, which is, and I'm going to be terribly cowardly and describe it as a Balkan dish because I do not want to get sucked into the chavapi wars, which I know are a thing, but the, the Balkan meat kebab related dish, chavapi, when done well, is absolutely glorious. I Am I, am I going to court controversy? God damn it, I'm going to court controversy. The best I've ever been served uh, was in Prizren in Kosovo. Um, apologies to the entire rest of the Balkan region. Yeah. I've had some very filling meals in the Balkans. Mm-hmm. Um, they really know how to get the meat and the pasta and to cook it in fat. And it's so unhealthy and so fulfilling, particularly if it, in the, when it's cold. I was in Pristina and it was very cold. But, and we just, they just fed us and fed us and fed us. So, yeah, I like it. Unsophisticated, but it, it, it was fun. <laughs> that, that word unsophisticated, to be clear to our Balkan listeners, was used by Ivor Gaber and does not <laughs> respe- reflect the opinions of Monocle Radio as an entity. Um, Lizette, is there, is there any underrated national cuisine apart from New Zealand's you would like to speak up for? Yeah, I would like to talk more about New Zealand's oh, food. No, then. yeah. They, we make a delicious chocolate that's covered pineapple and we call it a pineapple lump and it, everyone should eat it. In, in fairness, big fan. Thank you. Uh, I, Frozen, I, even better. Yeah. No, I, we, we have a Kiwi colleague who has returned occasionally yes. from the old country with a bag of pineapple lumps, can confirm. 95 at least. <laughs> Is the word lump very attractive? <laughs> would the bra- what would the branding experts say about d- naming a place lump? It's a, it's a sellout. It's a sellout in New Zealand, well, so they're happy. We haven't yet talked about um, the Scottish dish, the batter-covered Mars bar. The battered Mars bar is a delicacy unknown outside of Scotland for a very good reason. It's horrible. I always assumed that was kind of an urban myth. No, really? You've never had one? I thought it was was a story they told like hunting the haggis and how to chase it the wrong way around the hill so it topples over. Oh, that's true as well. They have them in New Zealand too. (laughs) Number number 96. (laughs) Well, Lizette Raymer and Ivor Gaber, thank you both for joining us. New Zealand, better luck next year. Uh, Finally, on today's show, in a former mill town situated between Providence, Rhode Island and Boston, Massachusetts, is one of the last supper clubs of its kind in the Northeast. In the 1980s, Chan's Fine Oriental Dining transformed from a modest 
Chinese restaurant to a jazz and blues club hosting some of the genre's biggest names. Monocle contributor Marisa Mazria-Katz takes us inside to meet its owner, his adoring fans and a musician whose love of the place has kept him playing there for years. The list of singers who've performed at Chan's Fine Oriental Dining is long and breathtaking. A who's who of jazz and blues legends. Dizzy Gillespie, Leon Redbone, Aztec Two-Step, Tab Benoit, Watermelon Slim. Shamika Copeland, she was here, she'd been singing here since she was like a teenager. And she's now one of the top uh, blues divas in the world. Kim Wilson from the Fabulous Thunderbird. That's John Chan, the owner. We're standing in the middle of a long hallway filled with dozens of pictures of some of the musicians who've played here over the years. That's Honey Boy Edwards. He, uh, he played until almost 90 years old, and he was the uh, last person to have seen Robert Johnson alive. Robert Johnson is uh, famous for selling his soul to the devil to play the blues. John is taking me on a tour of the space. The walls are painted emerald green, and above us, special rose-colored tiles. The ceiling tile was, uh, was made in Taiwan. It was a hot stamp, with, uh, I think made by teak wood. It was uh, the, uh, the classic dragon and phoenix design, beautifully done. In the large dining room are Chinese landscapes, a bronze relief of peacocks, colorful paintings of jazz musicians mid-performance. There's also a horseshoe-shaped bar, lit by LED lights, and a red-eyed dragon lamp that sticks out from the wall. And then there's the crown jewel, the rosewood front doors. They're from China, and my parents were there, and he had this custom-made just for this entrance. And it's uh, all hand-carved with a warrior and, uh, and the maiden, and uh, it's uh, been here for many years. John moved with his family to New York from Hong Kong at the age of 10. A few years later, they moved to Woonsocket, Rhode Island, and took over the restaurant, which had been around since 1905. Back then, it was called the New Shanghai. That time, Chinese food was very exotic, so people doesn't know what it is. And so somebody invented this chow mein and chop suey sandwiches. What chow mein sandwich is? A piece of white bread, chow mein noodle, chow mein, which is... Onions, celery in a brown sauce, another slice of white bread on top of that, and brown gravy on top. And at that time, we were selling for like probably five cents, ten cents. And uh, for our centennial celebration, we had one day special chow mein chop suey sandwiches for 25 cents. And they were coming by the busload. John started to work at the restaurant, first washing dishes, then cooking, and eventually waiting tables. But when he went to college, everything changed. That's when I discovered the jazz and blues music, and I thought maybe this might work in Woonsocket. He asked his father if he could invite some musical acts to chance, and he said yes. So we tried it out in the old restaurant, you know, we moved the tables and set up a stage, you know, and uh, started with local artists, and then it eventually expanded to more regional. It took off, so much so that When the bank next door moved out, John took it over and turned the vault into a 125-seat club. John calls the space, which is opposite the main dining area, the Four Seasons Banquet Room. And it became a passion for me. And uh, 
Fortunately, we were living in New England, where a lot of great musicians in the area. We have Berklee College of Music in Boston, also New England Conservatory. And so all these great products that came out of this uh, great music school were living in the uh, New England area, so we have a rich pool of artists to, to choose from. John Chan, everybody, come on! It didn't take long till it was anointed one of the best music venues in the state. And then came the awards. He was inducted into the Rhode Island Music Hall of Fame. He got a Keeping the Blues Alive Award from Memphis, Tennessee's Blues Foundation. And so many more. It also earned the club a special motto, home of egg rolls, jazz, and blues. One of this past weekend's headliners was an act that's been performing here since the 90s, Papa Chubby. I asked the singer before he went on stage what kept him coming back year after year. John Sham. No, first and foremost, John is one of my favorite people in the universe. I like to refer to him as a raconteur because take a look around, around this place, man. It's like a cultural collision which is a beautiful thing. But, he tells me, there's more. You could tell he has reverence for the music and the musicians, and he's he really gets into going up there and to his, his introduction, getting everybody's na- name right. None of these club owners know the musicians' names. They don't care who's playing bass and drums. John does. Moments before the music begins, John was getting the house ready, making sure people were in their seats and menus on the table. He stopped for a moment, taking in the crowd. They are a very receptive audience, and they, they love the intimacy of the room. It's just a great vibe, and the energy is like, like electric some night. Magical. And... As he's done for over four decades, John takes the stage and introduces tonight's act to an audience that seems to clap for him as much as for the show they're about to see. For Monocle Radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, I'm Marissa Masria-Katz. Thank you, Marissa. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Iva Gaber and Lizette Raymer. Today's show was produced by Isabella Jewell and researched by Neoma Akwe. Our sound engineer was Steph Chungu. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.